today we have something a little different for you. Over the next several weeks, we will be showcasing our top five episodes of all time. Enjoy the episode and be sure to join us next week to hear the rest. Welcome to the Ready Eddy Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. What's going on, guys? Before we get into today's podcast episode, I wanted to give you a quick update on the Ready Eddy membership program. To this point, we've grown to have thousands of products from up-and-coming startups and small businesses in the outdoor travel and lifestyle space on the platform. You can save up to 50% off all of these products, anything from skis to jackets to food bars to supplements. Anything you could think of to support your outdoor activities is on the platform from small up-and-coming brands. It's a great opportunity to support small businesses while also discovering brands that you've never heard of. You can show off the new gear to your friends and also save a ton while doing it. If you're interested in checking it out, head over to readyeddy.com slash members to get your first month free. What is going on, Ready Eddy Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, your host on today's episode. I am sitting down with one of the co-founders of True Gear, Chris Pugh. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Hey, Josh. Happy to be here. Awesome. All right. So for the listener that may not be familiar with True Gear, how would you best describe your business to them? Yeah. So True Designs and Manufacturers, high-end backcountry apparel for skiing and snowboarding. And we sell mostly direct off our website and um, are well-known for our best-selling product, which is our line of ski and snowboard bibs. That's really interesting. Okay, so you got this started in 2008, so you're, you're about 10 years old at this point. The, the idea is it's direct-to-consumer for the most part, which allows you to create pretty high-end products at a more affordable price. What made you decide to start this business to begin with? Yeah, um, so in 2008, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, um, we got into it focused just on a, a product that we want to create. And that at the time was the truth bib. Um, the business and the brand kind of grew around that product. We developed a larger offering because we realized that the accounts and the stores we were trying to get wanted more of a brand than just this one product. Um, but 2008 was my senior year in college and I actually took that spring break to go visit some factories up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, the genesis of this idea was just talking with one of my friends from growing up, Trip Fry, um, who was living up in Hood River, Oregon, about making a backcountry ski pant. And so our original idea was like, let's just make a few and get them into some, you know, really high-end good independent retailers here in the Northwest. And um, yeah, so we managed to make some samples up in Vancouver and then hit the road and hit the trade shows and um, created a unique business just around that one product. So what about the bibs were really different than what was currently on the market that you felt really um, made it so much better? Yeah. So the, so the snow bib is like a classic Alpine mountaineering design. Um, It's something that you could either, you know, you see snow bibs as like something marketed to kids under the age of 10 or 
you know, super lightweight mountaineers who are, you know, climbing Rainier or, or doing, um, you know, kind of high output mountaineering activities. But the type of skiing and snowboarding that we were interested in doing and then what our peers did at the time was this kind of in-between backcountry, you know, when you kind of hear it called like slack country or resort access backcountry. Um, and at the time, there wasn't really a soft goods product or company that catered directly to that customer. Um, that's like the split boarding customer. That's the customer that's buying the Marker Duke bindings, the Alpine boots that lock in and out of walk mode. Um, so we were all wearing baggier, more comfortable snowboard apparel and then trudging up, uh, you know, into backcountry zones in Colorado and, and later in the Northwest. So the bib for us was like this pinnacle of, you know, such a functional alpine pant it's built for deep powder it's great for long days in the mountains because it's super comfortable um and it's also designed with lots of storage and um access for venting and so just taking that classic alpine silhouette and building it with a little bit more functionality for what we want to do um was kind of like the genesis of the company now did you have any background in design um, slash the manufacturing of uh, soft goods like this? No, I, I did not. Uh, Trip was actually working for a hat manufacturer called Shred Alert in Hood River at the time. So he um, was familiar with the wholesale model, right, of building, ordering products based on forecasts you get from retailers and what type of information you need to get a factory in terms of production and financing um so we built the idea of the brand around that model um, but our early design was it's kind of like how anyone would design a product without knowing what they're doing they just take like all their favorite products and you combine what you like and don't like to figure out what the what the best mix is going to be and so we were literally like you know we'd have a sleeve that we liked from an arcteryx jacket and like wow this articulation is so good so we cut that off the jacket and then you find a hood you like from another jacket and like oh wow this hood's pretty sweet cut it off and then so you kind of frankenstein um a jacket together in that way and the bibs in that regard was you know starting with the bib um upper you like from a alpine pant and then finding your favorite fit from another pant and then just kind of backing into it and we literally took like Tupperware bins of garments and fabrics and stuff up to the factory and just showed up with that instead of what we do now, which is like, you know, which we have a tech pack and designs and build materials. So it's very much starting with like the full Frankenstein uh, design mentality. That's really interesting. So I assume you start working on this pretty far before the launch in 2018. How long did it really take you to fine tune uh, the first version of the bib to the point where you were ready to launch true and be like, okay, I'm proud of this product. I know it's quality and that people are going to find value in it. Yeah. So we, so we created the business in 2008, but we didn't start selling the product until, until fall 2009. And so summer 2008, spent mostly up in Vancouver, British Columbia, building and um, iterating on the prototypes. And it was interesting up there that that was the year, I think maybe 2007 was the year 
that Arcteryx closed down some of their garment operations in Vancouver. So there was actually um, a, a a bunch of access to machines and talent and people who knew how to build technical garments who are recently out of work. And um, so we kind of, you know, we met with a few bigger name factories that we got through, um, you know, connections in the outdoor industry or just going to people's websites and figuring out where their where their garments are made. And through meetings with those factories, they kind of led us down chain or downstream, sorry, to smaller factories and smaller factories until finally we met a guy that basically had a garage sewing operation um, with a couple sewers and he was making custom gear for Canadian Mounties at the time. Like Mounties would say, Hey, I got this holster. I want to like add another, um, you know, place to store a gun or I don't know what Mounties carry <laughs> or, or they just want to like design a custom waterproof jacket for, um, for their own use. And so this is the guy that was doing that. Um, and so we built our samples with him and, that summer went through i mean a good solid three or four months of uh, probably 10 to 15 prototypes yeah i can imagine it was definitely a fun learning experience <laughs> yeah yeah and then um and then we took those prototypes on the road in the fall and that's when we started meeting with stores and we we told stores like the the conversation piece on those early prototypes was like, this is not the final product, but this is like, they were good enough. So stores could kind of see the vision of what we were trying to do. And they saw how the product creation was going to be different than what other brands were offering at the time. Um, so I think they were good enough to capture their attention, but we got a lot of great feedback from stores too, because buyers are really knowledgeable about um, you know, what's going to sell to their customer, what's good for the market, what's on trend. And so we're able to take our initial prototypes and run them through another phase of you know, another feedback loop by just talking with the buyers for that um, probably a three or four month period in the fall 2008 to winter 2009. And do you remember any of the um, pieces of feedback that the buyers gave you that you're like, huh, okay, yeah, let's let's implement that? Yeah. Well, we really built our whole line around some of the feedback we got from buyers. Um, you know, we're a direct consumer brand now, 10 years later, but our first business plan was retail only. <laughs> and we were going out and saying like, okay, we, we just want to cater to these stores. We want to build a brand. We've always loved working with independent retailers, and we want to build products that just work really well for them. And so, we took like all their feedback in terms of, um, you know, how many colorways should we have? What's your, what's like a good, you know, what kind of size distribution would you guys order? And you guys think that most stores would order? Um, and so the the colors was an interesting one. We still actually use something of that original formula we learned from dealers that first year. It's like a um, hot medium mild breakdown right so you have your mild which is black gray or blue medium which is like for us is khaki or some kind of solid workwear color and then you have your hot which is brighter color blocking bolder and in that way retailers have seen this 
you know, from so many customers, but you put your hot ones on the wall or in the window, the people come in, get attracted to the brand, and they end up walking away with the, the medium or the mild. Um, and so that was pretty valuable feedback right, right in the beginning. And to this day, we kind of follow something of a formula like that. That's really interesting. So what made you decide to shy away from the retail shops and go more, uh, more towards direct-to-consumer? Yeah, so we were selling to independent retailers for um, six years. So we built up a distribution of about 60 stores in North America, and we were just starting to get into Europe um, in 2011. I think it was 2011. I guess it was more like 2012. Um, we were finalists for the ISPO brand new awards in, in Munich, Germany. And so they pay for your booth um, to to um, display your products and try to get European distributors. And so we're just starting to build that network. And by um, that year, I think we got eight international distributors in Europe. And we've um, always had pretty good distribution in Japan um, and Canada. But what we realized in probably 2014, we started, you know, we grew to a comfortable size where we could um, you know, we were all doing it full time and we started to reach out to different advisors and local investors about how we can try to scale the business. And it became pretty apparent to us that the bigger we scale for wholesale, um, the harder our business will be. And to some extent, the less like real product development and brand building will do compared to uh, just selling direct to consumer. And I guess what I mean by that is when you when you build up a business um, through the wholesale um, model, a lot of what you're scaling is the scaling sales channels and salespeople and independent reps and distributors. And a lot of what you do as a brand is servicing those reps and servicing your re- retailers and building your brand around not just actually servicing your individual, like kind of the end consumer, but you're really building your products to a couple layers above that consumer. Um, And we'd always sold direct consumer off our website. It wasn't a huge part of our business at that time, um, but it was, you know, growing to be the part of our business that we liked the most Um, from a product development standpoint, for example, when someone goes into a store and they try on your truth bib or they try on the cosmic jacket and they don't like it, they don't buy it. They just put it back in the rack and they, maybe they tell a salesperson, maybe they don't, but then they go buy something else. And we, we lose the value of that feedback. We lose that whole exchange. Whereas, um, just selling something online, when someone tries on a product, they ship it back immediately. They're hit with a questionnaire. It's like, well, why didn't you, like the product, or I return it because it's too big, or I return it because it didn't meet my expectations. And that's a pretty valuable piece of data for a company our size. Um, so there's there's kind of lots of little um, benefits that we started realizing that when we went out to do a fundraise in, in 2015, we did that fundraise on the platform of converting our business to direct-to-consumer. That's really interesting. So was there, I I guess there was a bridge point, right? Where you went from your predominantly retail driven business to then shifting to um, direct to consumer. How long did that take? 
Um, it just took one year and we did it in a way. So we basically every, um, every winter, you know, brands like us and manufacturers go to trade shows and they pre-sell their products to their retailers. So that was when we broke the news to all of our, um, all of the retailers that we were currently working with that we w- won't be offering our products to wholesale distribution that next year. And yeah, I mean, to be honest, that was a really, that was a pretty tough time because we were nervous about um, the shift in our business model. We were kind of leaping into the unknown and then we were also having to sever some, some pretty valuable relationships and definitely the, the best retailers that had been with us for a long time, you know, they're, they're fans of the brand, they're fans of the product and they were bummed to not be a part of the growth anymore. But they also, you know, everyone just wants to see businesses that they respect succeed. And so they were like, you know, if this is what you guys feel like you need to do, then good luck. But, um, for sure they weren't pumped on that transition. Um, but it was something that we felt, we felt pretty confident that we needed to innovate our distribution model. We couldn't just keep competing at the same level as companies that in our industry are just massive. Like we're, we can't be sold in the same rack as companies that are, you know, hundred times or more bigger than us. We need to kind of level the playing field and, and try to, um, market in a much more original and, and what we felt like was more authentic to us way. And, yeah. and so you raised some capital to help sort of bridge that gap or help you guys get over that hurdle from switching. The we business? did. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Cause those having those pre-orders, um, and those, you know, bigger retail partners helps us go to the factory and finance production. Um, and then takes a lot of the risk out of building products because you know you're, who you're sending it to. Whereas direct consumer, you're, you're going to buy a bunch of product without selling it and then bring it back to your warehouse and start trying to market and sell it you know, directly yourselves. And so that was, it requires a lot more capital. Um, and then also digital marketing uh, itself requires more capital. Um, building our website out and stuff like that. And so it was, it was actually kind of an exciting thing to be able to go to investors and show them our unique brand and show them our unique product. And that alone is something that people can get excited about. But once we started telling them about this new distribution model, how not only is our product innovative and our brand having connection to our customer, but this distribution model reinforces that innovation and reinforces that connection with our customer um, because it is direct so it's um in some sense more scalable and more desirable for investors because we're not relying on other businesses to grow our business we're relying on ourselves and our ability to execute on our plans and and deliver good products um so yeah it was definitely riskier but i think in the end it allowed us to grow as a company and to, to kind of keep down a path that we felt was really exciting so essentially in 2014, you kind of almost started a new business, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I, yeah, we joke actually all the time that, I mean, I tell people we've been around for 10 years and it's like kind of unbelievable, but really we've had two, maybe three or four different businesses. <laughs> you know, like our first business plan, we were like, we're only, we're only selling to independent retailers. And then 
that was 2008 with a, with a recession. And so we quickly realized that we could not rely alone on independent retailers. And we actually got a bunch of press that year, like Outside Magazine and Ski Magazine wrote about our products. And so we knew that customers wanted our products outside of who we were able to sell it to that year. And so we did, okay, we're, we're going to have to do some kind of direct consumer model. So right in our first year, it was a, was a pretty quick business shift that wasn't in our plan. It wasn't in our like initial um, launch plan. And then, yeah, and then the big shift came in, in 2015, kind of fully direct consumer. And then um, we continue to look for ways to like innovate our business model. Like our, uh, our number one goal is just servicing our customers and creating the products that we want to create. And to a certain degree, we're kind of you know, now we're we're sort of like distribution agnostic, right? As long as our customers have a really easy time of finding and trying on and experiencing our products, then then we're fulfilling our mission. So how did you go about building the business online and more direct to consumer? Because when you guys made that transition, a lot of people may not have been as comfortable buying gear online that they've never tried on before yeah that's a really good point and something we continue to talk about and try to um innovate our own procedure i mean the the most basic thing you can do is have you know convince your customers that it's a really kind of hassle-free easy checkout and return process so you have to have free shipping you have to have free returns because what you're convincing your customers is that instead of coming into a store to try something on, we're going to make this more convenient for you and you can use your, your living room as your dressing room. And so the advantages there are instead of going into a store and having someone, um, you know, kind of, you know, you're not in your own space, you're having like strangers show you different products. Um, everyone shops differently. Some people really like that experience. And I do every once in a while, I love that experience of, working with different retailers, but sometimes if you know what type of product you want and you want to take your time checking out and especially with a piece of outerwear, you know, we can ship you a truth bib and then you can try it on with your base layers, with the jacket that you already own. You can put it over your skis, I mean, your uh, ski boots and um, walk around the house, ask your girlfriend, ask your brother, like, Hey, what do you think about this kit? And if you like it, keep it. If you don't, you can send it back any point within 30 days for, um, you know, to exchange for a different size or color or for a full refund. So in that way, we're kind of eliminating some steps and getting people into the right gear. And hopefully depending on what people's schedules are, like, um, I know we talked briefly before the podcast started about how crazy busy we get around the holidays and with work. But for me, like, I don't really ever go shopping anymore because I've got a nine month old baby and we, you know, run our own business. So if someone can ship products to my door, I'm that makes my life a lot easier than having to go, you know, shopping in town and stuff. That's a really good point. Now, in making that transition, were there any things that you did uh, in regards to marketing that really helped you catapult the business um, online? Um, you know, we're still figuring that out. Like, there wasn't one thing. Um, hate to disappoint all the listeners, but there wasn't like one thing we discovered that truly worked uh, right away. And we tried a lot of stuff. We tried catalogs, um, you know, trying to, we produced like a kind of a, a brand video in the beginning. Um, 
and nothing really turns the needle just like uh, what you would expect would, which is constant communication. Like you're basically, once you enter into the digital marketplace, you're competing with all the other brands in digital marketplace for people's constant attention. And so that's really what we realized we needed to do is just, um, you know, constantly post to social media, keep email newsletters very regular, update our website all the time, uh, create original blog content, produce videos of their athletes, get athletes to talk about us, send out products for public relations. So it's like the combination of all these things together has a much bigger impact than doing just one thing alone. So, you know, you, you have to get product into the major publications like for us is outside magazine or some of the um, more core publications like powder or ski free skier. Um, you have to get that. And then once you get those, you have to have your athletes out there talking about your products on their social media feeds. And then you have to, once you get those customers to become aware of your products, they start following you. Then you have to keep them regular, regularly updated with what you're doing. And if you can do all those things, there's kind of like a snowball effect that that makes all those things work a lot better together. I think that's really smart. It's not one piece, sort of, but all of it working together yeah. that really makes it work. I wish, <laughs> I, wish it, I wish it was one thing. <laughs> I mean, maybe if we made a viral video, it, it would help, but it's hard to like, um, right, plan on that. You know, you just oh, yeah. have to like, you just have to do everything. Yeah, it's not like it. It's not like a decision where you're just like, "Yep, this is going to be a viral video," and that's that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, it's what you guys do too. It's like kind of, uh, you know, you guys have a model where you're relying on all these different channels to help promote brands and um, and and your own brand too. And so it's we're basically doing you know a lot of the same stuff. Very very true. Now I want to take a pivot more towards the uh, the product itself and mm-hmm. um, you know True's commitment to sustainability. So how do you keep that in mind? Um, when it comes to the to manufacturing you know of your entire line yeah so our um you know our kind of quick sustainability stance is just building products that last and supporting customers with what we call limited lifetime warranty which um basically means we'll fix any garment that was damaged during its intended use like if you buy a ski pant and it gets damaged while you're skiing then we'll fix it. But if it gets caught on fire while you're standing in front of a campfire or whatever, then that's not covered by warranty. But we'll actually take that product in and give you a quote on how much it would cost to fix it. And trying to educate customers on the impact they can have on buying a garment that will last for three to five seasons without having to you know, do any warranty. And then after something a zipper blows out or you want to you know retape a seam send it back to us and we can add another few years on the life of that garment that has a pretty profound impact on the environment um and i think that's that's currently our our kind of biggest advantage um that we have from a sustainability point of view we do uh one of our goals in the future is to use more sustainable fabrics um there hasn't been that many like fully recycled uh, polyesters or nylon woven faces that can withstand the type of uh, use that I think our main customers expect. Um, but that's changing, actually. There's a lot of 
higher quality fabrics and coatings and laminates out there that are starting to be made in a more eco-friendly way. Um, and so it's definitely something that we value and will um, you know, build into our line in the future. And then from kind of a corporate social responsibility standpoint, we work with a couple factories we work really closely with um, overseas. One, the main factory we work with is in Bangladesh and the others in, in Vietnam. And we have a really good relationship with both these factories. We've been in the one in Bangladesh for, for six years. And we have a code of conduct that's based on the international labor organization's kind of main tenets, which are the, you know, no forced labor, no child labor, the right to um, join labor unions. And basically, if and all those requirements are um, the, also the governing law in Bangladesh. So if the factory is legal, a lot, a lot of people think that overseas manufacturing is always in these kind of illegal sweatshops um which is a huge problem it's no doubt a huge problem um but if you can verify that your factory is legal <laughs> you you kind of get over a lot of hurdles right there and then beyond that develop a working relationship where you can go to the factory and you can see pay stubs you can visit the workers and you can develop products alongside them um you know you're i think you can create a really beneficial relationship for them and and for for building your products What's been the hardest part about starting and, and building True Year? Um, I think the hardest part, which might resonate with, with a lot of your, your listeners, if there's other entrepreneurs out there, is kind of balancing the, the family life, um, which I had a good you know, five years where I was you know, not living with my girlfriend or then later my wife or now my wife and now I have a kid. And in the beginning, you, you know, I was working, uh, there was no, it wasn't nine to five. It was like, you know, seven to 10 or, or even till later because I'm Skyping with, with Asia, um, during their time zone. So there's like, there was just never, um, I just had all the time in the world to devote to the business. And, and that was really necessary in the beginning. And what I had to learn after that is just to be much more efficient with my time because I've got a nine month old son now. And, um, I really, really value that time at home with him and with my wife and, you know, building free time around the business to be with them is, is really tough for sure. And so that's something that, um, was hard to plan for and we're like constantly working on it. But I think that any effort that um, you know, people starting businesses can put towards creating, you know, their own personal time, especially if they have a family, uh, is, is definitely worth it. Definitely. I always, um, look in amazement when I see or hear about people starting a business with, with multiple kids. <laughs> like, I just yeah. have any, like, I don't have any kids currently. And I if I started Ready Eddie when I did, I don't know if I would have made it. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you definitely would have, and you, and you and you can do it. It's like, it's one of those things. I also talk a lot of, you know, when people ask about different attributes that entrepreneurs might have for starting a business, and one of the things I like to say is ignorance. Like, you have to be kind of naive to want to start a business, and because once you're into it, and once you realize how hard it's going to be, you're probably never going to do it. <laughs> and, <Very> so, <laughs> and so if you don't know how hard it's going to be, you don't know how much work it's going to take, you don't, 
you know, you, you don't like kind of realize all that stuff and you jump in and have the right work ethic and right intention and right idea. And there has to be a market space for you. But as long as you don't really know how hard it's going to be, I think that's actually uh, going to be a positive thing. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're so right about that. Um, I want to ask you, how did you come for the name True Gear? Yeah, so my last name's Pew, and uh, our co-founder's named Trip. And so we combined Trip and Pew for True. Love it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, and not, not a lot of people know that because our, like our mission statement has always been creating this, this gear for what we felt like was the true rider. Yeah, you know, T-R-U-E. And so a lot of people just thought we were kind of creating a phonetic name that meant like this idea of true rider, which which I like too. It's that really is what we're doing. You know, we 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 try to get to some idea of like truth and integrity with product design and um and so it, it has that connotation which which we really like. Yeah, it's funny. I always thought that as well. I sort of assumed uh that's what it was based on, but it's 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 funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, the way people come up with the, the names of uh, their businesses. I know. So where do you see True Gear in the next year, five years, ten years down the road? Yeah, so um, what keeps us really motivated about our business is, is creating cool products. And, you know, we're a small team. There's only five people working here. And what keeps everyone coming back to work every day is is when we have an exciting product release or we make a colorway or a new style, or we have an idea for a new style that's going to be in the next two years. Um, that's what keeps it so exciting for us. And, you know, we're, we're trying to build a business that supports that um, process, I guess. And we've been through a lot of exercises like anyone will, if they're running a business for 10 years about like, Hey, what are, let's create some exit strategies. Let's find someone to acquire us, or maybe we don't, let's just, keep building up the cash flow so we never have to have someone acquire us and and i've kind of like you know i i still continue to prototype those different ideas with our team and to think about that stuff but i realize what's just most important to us is our is our quality of life right now and and what um in creating a really motivated and exciting workplace like today and right now i can see for this team it's like all about just being really proud of the brand and proud of the work we're doing and, and especially proud of the products we're creating. And so I hope just to do that as long as possible. And I think if, um, if we can do that, then we'll, we'll have some, you know, ability to, um, yeah, be successful in, in five or 10 years. Definitely. Now over the 10 year lifespan of true gear, what has the growth been like? Was it pretty quick to get yourself and, um, your co-founder full-time like what did, what did that look like over the, the last 10 years yeah so the first i think the first three years were were like very slow um we were lucky to have like a a decent launch in 2009 because of that kind of initial press um but we built I think we built about 300 total units that year um and sold through them and that's in like in a you know jacket and pants styles and we were working uh i know let's say the first year we're working full-time um or not full-time but but most nights at a bar in hood river and myself and my brother continued to work there for for a couple of years more like part-time um but we we're we we're pretty 
full time with the business, probably like kind of year two and a half or three. And, but we, <laughs> I guess when you, when you look at back at the business at that time, we were like all living in the same house and our office was the garage that we had converted. And it was a really sweet garage. Actually, the owner of the house used to work on cars. So there's just like a really nice garage. Um, but we would, you know, wake up and walk across the yard into the garage. And so it wasn't like, it was like the business kind of was our life. So it was just kind of this real blurry distinction between, um, you know, how are we going to get this thing to like grow beyond just being this kind of real insular garage business. Um, and that really happened in 2014 when we started, um, working with advisors and, and local investors to try to design our business around more for growth and less about just being kind of the garage project. Um, which is like, you know, that's like a good five years after, <laughs> after we started. So in that regard, we were, we were like moving pretty slow and building the brand pretty organically. And then, um, from that point of raising money, we, um, I mean, we, I think tripled our direct sales that first year when we switched our business models and, um, and have had pretty good growth since then. And I'd say it's like pretty sustainable growth, like about 20%, um, year over year this year, we've had some really phenomenal growth because of some private label projects where our revenue is, um, I think we're probably going to be up about 40 or 50% by, by the end of the year. And so um, that's been really validating. Now we've, I think we've kind of smoothed out our the learning process of um, being direct consumer business, and now we can kind of really focus on the growth part of that business. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one thing to keep in mind for you know listeners or people thinking about starting their own business. A you know a lot of investors or even um, people starting the business are going to want like a, a much steeper growth trend and, um, or growth trajectory. And that's definitely possible. But I think it's just what we've seen is it just can be really risky and expensive. Um, and I think a lot of investors will want you to do that and they'll say like, okay, well, like let's put a bunch of money in this thing and see how fast we can grow. And if it doesn't work, we'll move on and do something else. And then so can you. And I think we've always, you know, like I've said in this conversation, just been really been motivated by, our ideas for product creation and been really confident in the type of brand and um, products we want to create that that's been the highest priority for us. And so it's been less about, you know, just going throttle down, grow as fast as we can and more about how can we have sustainable growth and create some really cool products. That's really interesting. So what's the best part about running true gear? Um, I think it's the people that we get to work with. I mean, our, our small team right here is, is pretty incredible. And just watching how we've all grown over the years. And um, like Shay, our marketing manager, for example, was our intern like six years ago or something, right after he came out of, right after he graduated from U of O. And, um, and so we were, you know, he was just like doing events and helping um, just kind of manage inventory in the office. And now he's like the number, you know, running all of our marketing, team manager, digital marketing, email.com guy. 
and so that's pretty incredible to watch that type of growth in in any person and um and same with everybody who's, who's worked here that's i think that's like the coolest the coolest thing and um and then the relationships we have with our suppliers you know whether it's the textile mills from japan or taiwan and then the factories we work with in um bangladesh and vietnam or the the marina wool people in new zealand there's just some really phenomenal people and it's cool to connect so many people with a different background and different interests but we all kind of share this the same goal sorry they're drilling something on our roof right now i don't know if you heard that no worries Um, but yeah, I think definitely everything related to the people and relationships and, and running and starting this business has been really rewarding. Oh, I bet. I bet. The relationships are such an important part of it and um, makes the long hours a little bit um, easier. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, now, for the listener who um, who's listening between November 27th and December uh, 25th, Christmas Day, we're actually giving away... Um, some gear from True Gear, so you can head over to ReadyEddy.com for your chance to win, with a, along with a full ski and snowboard setup from a bunch of other brands. Um, so if you're interested in winning, definitely head over to ReadyEddy.com before Christmas for your chance to win. And with that, Chris, I really want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast, share your story, everything that um, you guys have got going on with True Gear and um, where you guys are going in the future. Yeah, thanks a lot, Josh. It's been great talking to you, and thanks for... Um helping us out with a, with a giveaway and look forward to working with you guys in the future. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Ready Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.